You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast, how to not die poor with Michael Arsenault. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. I'm always excited that you join me. If you're first time listener, welcome, welcome. If you're a returning listener and journeyer, you know what's up. I'm super excited to have you here. Hopefully this conversation will inspire you, educate you, motivate you, all the things, give you the fuel you need to continue on your journey. Now, today on the podcast, I'm talking to Michael Arsenault, who is a New York Times bestseller. And he first wrote the book, I Can't Date Jesus, Love, Sex, Family, Race, and Other Reasons I Put My Faith in Beyonce. (laughs) What an amazing title, first of all. And so his second book is really what caught my attention. I knew that he had put out the first book. I didn't read his first book, but I knew that it did really well and had a lot of great feedback. But with his second book, I was intrigued because the title of it is I Don't Want to Die Poor. And that caught my attention because I was like, what is this about? And of course, it's about money. And Michael writes from a place where I think a lot of people can relate from. You know, he's not a personal finance expert or someone talking about money from that point of view. He's a regular person. Um, you know, he's a writer, he's a creative, he's an entrepreneur, but he's writing from this position of dealing with money, primarily student loan debt. Now, how many of you guys can relate to that? You know, I also had student loan debt, but Michael talks about it in a way in which I really think a lot of people can relate to about just the burden of student loan debt and how he accumulated the student loan debt and what it was like, what it is still like. He's still paying it off. And he has such a wonderful way with words. You know, I do really try to read every book. Um, when I have an author on, I do my best to read their books beforehand. So that way I know exactly you know, what the book is about and that it's a good book. So that way, when I'm telling you that you should pick it up, like I really mean it, but I really do think this is an amazing book that you will find a lot of similarities in if you are in the space of paying off debt and not wanting to die poor. So he says he's still working on it. He's still working on not dying poor. But from what I can tell, this is going to, I think, inspire and help a lot of people. So I'm excited that you are tuning in. Now, if you actually want to watch this episode, so I sometimes record the video of the interviews. So if you want to check that out, you can go to my YouTube channel, go to youtube.com slash journey to launch. Or if you're following me on social at journey to launch on Instagram or Facebook, I'll probably post some clips there. But I always find um, it interesting. People like if you're listening to this, then you probably like listening to podcasts. But sometimes people will say, oh, it's so cool to actually see you, um, you know, interviewing someone like you see the video. Sometimes that adds a new dimension. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned and so much more. 
Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. Okay, let's hop into the episode. Hey, journeyers, I'm back with a what I believe is going to be a wonderful conversation. This is the first time I'm speaking to um, our guest. His name is Michael Arsenault. Did I pronounce that right? You got it right. Thank okay. you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so nervous about that part. And Michael, he wrote an amazing book called I Don't Want to Die Poor. And the reason why I'm excited to have you, Michael, on the show is like I have a personal finance podcast and brand. And so oftentimes I end up talking to people who are within the space already, like, which is fine. And, you know, experts in certain fields, but I always like talking to people who are not in the space. Like, right. Like there's no echo chamber here. It's like a real person with a real story. And you, you such a good writer. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) So the way you like put into words, your experience with debt and still fighting through it and, as a creative, as an entrepreneur, like I think it's amazing. I think it will help a lot of people because you're, you are speaking to the people. <laughs> so welcome. That's very kind. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. All right. So I don't want to die poor. First of all, the title alone is just <laughs> amazing. And I feel like that's what most of us, all of us who have not come from money, who is nothing is secured in this world. Like that's what it is that was pushing us forward in this world. But so the book itself seemingly is about like student loan debt, but you touch upon a lot of things. Right. Um, well, thank you for the title. I, I just tend to get to the point. This is my second book. My first book is called I Can't Date Jesus. So um, I Don't Want to Die Poor is very much just a direct, uh, succinct, simplistic way of saying, you know, I don't want to die poor for obvious reasons, but in particular, as you read through like the first chapter, which is kind of an extension of what um, started as like an essay in the New York Times Sunday Review about my personal with private debt, is that I really like if you have private student loan debt, which actually disproportionately impacts black people, like of the over trillion dollars in student loan debt, a hundred billion of that is private loan debt. A hundred billion is still a lot of money. If I died right now, like God forbid, Beyonce forgive, everybody forbid, my mom would still be on the hook for the loans based on the way that type of debt is set up in the country. So we are disproportionately dying, but this is even before that. We're still disproportionately dying from a lot of different things. So I don't want to poor speaks to that kind of like reality that a lot of people are probably grappling with it right now. They were already, but even more now. Yeah. And I think um, the timing of when this book, when did this book um, get released? Um, It was released April 7th, which at the time was the deadliest week for the coronavirus ongoing pandemic. Um, I don't recommend releasing a book during a pandemic, but yes, um, I thought the book was really timely already, but it's definitely more timely because many of the factors that I write about are unfortunately wreaking havoc on everyone right now. Right. It's just even more pronounced um, and real for people. You have a lot of amazing like chapter titles. I love all of them um, in your book. I'm just going to read a couple of them because I want to like focus on a couple points. So one is like you self-centered bastard. That's one of your um, your chapters. Yeah. I love Instagram. It sometimes makes you want to die mm-hmm. and it's cheaper to die. So there's a bunch of amazing titles, but the one about you self-centered bastard, you know, the whole point of that from what I got as a lesson is that sometimes you have to be a self-centered person. Is that correct? This, when it comes to money? That would not be my interpretation. Respectfully, okay. But it's not a swat away though. Um, because 
Well, in this instance, just for those who haven't read it yet, I highly recommend this trade paperback. Paperback is totally very affordable if you got it. But no, I think when you substance about it, it's, it's basically an insult that my mom regretted that she hurled at me. Honestly, understandably, because, you know, I just come from working poor, working class people, and we don't have the means like that to kind of take on that type of debt. So she does regret what she said, and she she did really soon after. So this is me like very much later talking about it. What I talk about is just kind of grappling with the debt. So to your point, to be true, I don't, the thing is, I don't consider it to be selfishness or self-centeredness. I don't think there's anything wrong with you know, I, as much as the book, I, there's the marketing copy of the book, like, oh, we're ch- chasing his dream. But if you really read the book, it's as much an indictment of the system at large, not so much me. So, like, even though my mom had her feelings, which were justifiable, and I did what I did, and I, you know, understand why people do what they choose to do to get ahead, or in my case, escape, you know, an abusive situation. If you read I Can't Take Jesus, there's a lot of what's going on in the house. But, yeah, I think it is important for people to kind of, you know, sometimes make that choice because we have to survive, particularly as I write it from a queer perspective. Like I wasn't out at the time, but I really, it was a lot of things beyond just trying to taste my dream. So no, um, I don't regret it, but yeah, I just want to make sure I don't encourage self-centered behavior because I do think narcissism floats very highly within Americans, particularly in my generation. So yeah. Yes. Hopefully yes. that was clear. I'm sorry. No. I was just trying to, okay. That, that's very clear. I mean, there is a fine line, right? Like, but you know, I find like, even I think for most of us who did not come from, money or, and we have to like pull ourselves up from our bootstraps and, you know, work within a system that is damaged is that you have to make choices. And one of the choices you talked about was like, and what was taught to you is that, you know, education by any means, regardless of the cost, like at that point, and it was so many like young people, millennials, like my generation, Mm -hmm. like your generation, like you weren't taught about cost of college. It was something you just did to like get as far as you could. Right. Well, yeah, I, but yeah, so, well, like I don't come from folks who like went to uh, like four year college like that. My mom was an LVN. She went back to school to become an RN. My sister did go. We were like the kind of the first from like, as I knew it, of like my family. My mom didn't have any pretense about how expensive college was, which is why she lashed out on me. But for a lot of people, what is happening to us with these private student loans is frankly, black people already at disadvantage because collectively we don't have as much access to certain things. So certain lenders will take advantage of that. My loans, which is impacting me and which is impacting a lot of people and which will continue to impact even more people unless college is changed, is that it's the, it's the educational equivalent of a subprime mortgage loan. So yeah, there are certain things that I didn't know about going in and I acknowledge that and I accept responsibility for. But again, when I say like, it's also, it's, it's as much an indictment of not me, but, but more so like the system itself is because like social mobility is a lot harder to attain for people. And black people in particular, you know, re- realistically, for some reason, we don't even talk about it. I'm, um, <laughs> but government jobs are usually how most people, black people in particular, became middle class before they were able to, like, really go before your education. You know, the government has been decimating that. You know, if you're under 40 and you're born in around Reagan, you really are set up to fail unless you were already born with money, if you really looked at it. So, you know, we don't have as much money. They take advantage. So that's what I was really trying to highlight, particularly like this type of debt. Like, yes, if I could go, people ask me, would you go back and do it again? Yeah, of course, because unfortunately, I mean, I'm not done at the private loan route, but the reality is what I've had to take out all this debt to have the same advantages as like a middle-class white person or hell, even like upper middle-class, middle-class black folks. Yeah, because what other option would a person like me have had? So it's about kind of saying, 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hard on myself and I'm telling you this is like the emotional way that I carried as much as like the financial debt and how that impacted me. But it's also, you know, again, saying like me learning to forgive myself for something I didn't need to be forgiven for, because while I did go in with, I wasn't completely green when you read the book, but I also couldn't take full account that, you know, media as I understood it no longer functioned that way because they didn't know how to deal with the advertising model. And for some reason, no one ever thought like over the course of 20 something years of broadband internet uh, or internet that maybe you should get people to pay for the content. At least they get used to getting it for free. And then, and then the great recession happened. So it's like, no matter what I would have pursued when I graduated, like even if I wanted to go to med school or whatever, I mean, maybe med school, but other jobs, the fact is we were all screwed. It's just kind of like, what were you going to do? Yeah. At the point that we were all, you know, around graduating, there was like a lot going on. And you talk about in your book, like um, deciding like, or thinking through profession, like choices. So you, yes. you graduated and your degree was in media. Yeah. I was a broadcast journalism major. Degree in broadcast journalism. Very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, right? Well, but I, but and- I appreciate my degree though. Shout out to Howard. Um, I learned a lot. You went to Howard. My brother went to Howard. When you think about choices, right? Like at that time, was it consciously making a decision about choosing what you enjoyed versus not chasing the money or what was going to make you enough, a lot of money? I knew journalism didn't pay a lot of money up front. I just had a fundamental belief in myself that I actually could really go the distance if actually given the opportunities. Like I really did study, frankly, how a lot of everyone moves in media. Like you, I, I literally was very much always into research and my mom didn't let me really go anywhere in the midst of chaos. So I was on the internet a lot of the time, reading a lot, studying people like, oh, I like what this person does. How do they get to that point? So by then it was kind of like I mentioned, I initially wanted to go to like NYU or Columbia and then I saw how much those cost. And then I actually knew someone around the corner from me. He went to NYU for a year and then he dropped out because he didn't have enough money. That's like at the time, like 30, 40 something thousand dollars a year. And if you knew where we come from, we nobody had that. And then he dropped out. I mean, he's fine now because he married rich, but he married a rich white man. I don't know if I ever will become, but I could have stayed in Texas. And I, don't get me wrong. You, this is for everybody listening, particularly at a time like this when it's, you know, the, the situations I graduated in are even worse now and even more unstable because a racist game show host is president, not just like a funny drunk uncle of a president or whatever that man Bush was. But if I wanted to go to UT Austin, maybe I would have got some money. I probably still created a nice life. But when I looked up Howard, I'm like, at first I thought it was a compromise. I'm like, this is actually not a compromise. This is actually the best place I should be because for me, what I wanted to do, the School of Communications was renowned. They were known for even recently placing people in markets where they actually worked their way up. And yeah, it was a lot of debt, but it wasn't going to be as much debt as like some of the other schools that I had been applying to and talking to. So it was still like a calculated risk. It was just certain variables that I didn't, I could have anticipated in some cases I should have known. Like I didn't know how merciless a corporation would be about a private loan. I've essentially, will I pay by the end of next year, $100,000 on a $60,000 loan over like a 12 year plan, which was extended to 13 only by the grace of like, and by grace that's ironic, of Hurricane Harvey relief that they gave to people who were within, like, it's just kind of all of these different things because, you know, people were having to help folks with it, you know, like hurricane hurt people, you know, it was hurting us all because I still contribute to places, you know, in Texas and all that. So it was just a lot of different things. You can't prepare for any of that. So that's why, you know, in hindsight it's 2020, but as hard as I was on myself, you know, when you sit down, well, by the time I wrote the book, I was already kind of at, well, peace enough, but I thought it was like I wanted to flip the narrative on, on its head because it's so often like it's our fault <laughs> or like, oh, it sucks. 
but not to the extent to which, no, we were set up. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's why I think a lot of people, if they pick up your book and read it, like they'll get it. Cause what you talked about, like realizing almost like, you know, looking back and realizing like, wait a second, this is not all on me. Like, obviously there's some self-responsibility there, but it's not all like the system itself. And even when it comes to like the protections or the pause of student loan payments that was enacted in, until September, like that was our, for federal loans, you know, like only for federal loans. I don't know the exact numbers, but there are so many people with the private loans that are still struggling. Wait, just to even succinctly go out, make sure I like a tangent of it, but you know, currently more than half of U.S. Black adults don't have a job. And a lot of those people probably do have student loans. And just statistically, they probably have loans like mine, maybe not as high, but just based on the way the payments are structured and they don't bend with you. They don't negotiate like the government. If you end up paying more interest in it, it's all still a scam. It's, they still work with you. These don't. Imagine how many people are hurting right now, how many people are having a credit damage, all these different things through no fault of their own. By the fact that even this government doesn't want to do what like Germany and Canada does, is essentially pay people to stay at home, make them wash their hands and use a mask until we get over this. But we're all going to hurt the most. But particularly if you're having this type of struggle, you're going to be looked at, especially if you're getting those calls that I write about, they're going to talk to you like you, you've done something wrong when it's not your, it literally is not your fault. Yeah, yeah. So you talked about, and you even just said, like for you, you pursued media and you felt like you could go the distance in it. I And I do have like a lot of people who are within the creative space that listen or want to dabble in that or writers, you know, me, myself, like becoming an entrepreneur recently full-time, like, and really it's based on my efforts and like my creativity that this works. But then it's like, I still need to get paid, like <laughs> to support my lifestyle. What What is that experience like for you? How have you grown since you first entered into this feel to now where you are now? Well, I've never, ever glamorized the situation I have been in. I think, again, like to literally if you're wanting around a Reagan for 40 years, it's been gross wage stagnation and gross inequality. If you're not the person benefiting from it, more than likely you're underpaid. Most Americans in this country are underpaid no matter how big the checks are, which is why when they say Americans are two checks away from like complete ruin, sadly and unfortunately, as we saw in recent months, but not enough now, there are a lot of people wearing bread loans. And a lot of those people are probably making over six figures. You can make over six figures and be broke. Most people don't make six figures in this country. They make about like 40 or 50 or 50 something now. And that's still not enough to all these different things. But in terms of me writing, I have always told people, and I've mentioned this throughout both of my books, unless I was, I mean, I've struggled, but on paper, I still make a pretty decent living. Um, in fact, me having to work so hard means I make more money because I have so much debt to pay off that I don't want to be swallowed whole by. I say that all to say, if I weren't making enough money to even just barely survive, then I'm, I wouldn't have, I would have dropped this a long time ago. I, I'm always reevaluating my strategy in terms of my greater goals. You know, a lot of things that I wanted to do took longer than I you know, wanted, but also, sometimes being able to sacrifice, again, is a, is a privilege. Like, most people don't get to be in media entertainment because they can't afford the privileges. And even if you are broke in media and entertainment trying to get there, that's still a privilege because you're just a little bit, you're doing just a wee bit better than someone else who literally can't even stand there for long. My advice to people who particularly want to be writers or creatives is that, you know, really go with it with humility. Be kind to yourself, which is something I remind myself to do. But realistically, like, you need to be able to make money. Like I always, I used to use this one example, like on Girls on HBO, which I like. I know it's controversial, even though I get like the characters be annoying. Trust me. But there was an episode like with Hannah, because it was Mighty White. 
but I know some black people have this attitude, but that's again, certain class that, you know, they want to do advertorial writing, which is basically you write an ad copy. Yeah, it's not glamorous. Yeah, it's not your passion. No, it's not your voice. But you know what? I mean, before this stuff happened, advertorial copy paid really well. In fact, it paid you so well, usually the money you get quicker because it's coming from whatever. They allow you to basically write it in your voice now more than ever. You're, you're supposed to be paid to do marketing copy. It's not for everybody's thing. You don't necessarily have to have your name. You can write something under it. Like for some people, like that might be, they're above that. Me, I made sure I did it with, you know, with approach. I was like, oh, I don't want to do that brand, but I'll do this. Okay, I'll make this work. Oh, this is just basically sponsored content. Like that's a way to actually make money. There's also other things to do that are non-writing related that I've done to make money. It's just like, realistically, until you can line up as a freelancer, particularly enough contracted work where you at least have a base pay that you're making each month and then you have to learn about taxes and insurance. And I know that's a step-by-step thing, but yeah, you have to humble yourself and be willing to do a lot of things to get to what you think is your purpose. I'm not a purist, you know? I don't believe in that. I don't glamorize it. So it just kind of is what it is. Yeah, no, I love that too. And that's solid advice. It's realistic. It's just like too, and because we're at the age where now these um, more quote unquote stable companies, these bigger companies are trying to be more down, trying to like get more into the culture. Like I think that there are more opportunities. Um, They're trying to think smaller because that's how you connect with your audience versus like this big top down, like not going into the weeds. So like, I think there's a lot of opportunities, especially now for people, but you have to be creative and think outside the box. This is just a, an aside. I know a lot of people want to be brands, which I don't want to go into tangent that usually alarms me. But I think, you know, if you want to be known for something, particularly if you are creative, particularly something like voice driven, please actually have some semblance of like an ideology or a point of view that actually speaks to whatever you want to represent and try not to force it. Because I think if you actually just are who you are, and speak to that consistently, yeah, people will get it. You don't have to tell them. I, I can see that a lot. And I don't necessarily think that'll be really healthy because people are kind of chasing basically. Yeah. I mean, people are going to like the micro influence, I think will probably be how people go about it, but like also kind of recognize that you're trying to be quote unquote influencer money, but like most of these corporations that you're trying to ideally get a few dollars from, if that don't have many dollars to give right now, because this economy is a lot worse than advertised. I don't have to be an economist, but you just, you know. <laughs> right. Well, and I think, I mean, that speaks to a testament of your, who you are and the books you've written. Like, it's like legitimately like your voice and you're not changing for anyone or anything. And that has what sets you apart, in my opinion, on, from anyone else that has done this. I appreciate it. And you know what? I, I've mentioned before, because it's true. If I had wanted to write a book a different way, particularly how the way that I like to consume otherness in ways that I would never want to present myself, that probably would have yielded me short-term greater financial benefit, but it wouldn't be creatively what I would want to do or say. It kind of defeats the purpose of what I was trying to do. But again, while I, I mentioned how I took a smaller book events for the first book because I wanted to write the book that I wanted to write. And I knew that if I got to write the book I wanted to write, that it would have some commercial success. So this, you know, thanks to that, other people now have gotten better book deals because of me and I got a better book deal for the second. So like, it's also keeping in mind that you... Being pioneering is not, I don't say that with ego. It's more like you're pioneering by virtue of the fact that white folks just don't let us in. So we are always kind of pioneer by default, but like also be considerate of the next person that you, you know, your choices impact others, unfortunately, but also be cognizant of that. Right, right. Now, one of the things you talk about is the healthcare part of things as being just an independent contractor. And I love your realness about your perspective of Obamacare. And like 
how that worked out for you. So can you talk about that a little bit? Obamacare was a, a one of the things, again, thinking of the collective, it was it a, it's a greater good for the collective in terms of the American public because much of what the legislation did was for the greater good. However, when people talk about how the legislation wasn't perfect, if you have to actually live through its imperfections, you know exactly what it is. I'm one of the few people who, because I'm a child of a nurse and I just know how black men die easily and uh, faster, made sure I always had health insurance, even when I was like one of the young people that didn't go. But once you, you know, because of the markets, um, frankly, Obamacare, again, in my opinion, was essentially Rob Me Care, which is essentially what Bob Dole's plan was in 1996. And so it already off the bat wasn't the best program to me for consumers. But again, it was for the greater good. That said, because of Republican challenges on all fronts in state courts, because of Supreme Court rulings, basically that insurance market is screwed. And it was already kind of bad before that, because essentially if you make over the median U.S. income, you don't qualify for subsidies. So you are prone to basically what might have been before $200, if less than that, for a health bill is now like six or $700. And if you're paying over $1,000 a month in student loans like I do, you can't do all of that at once. And then you can find more expensive plans and kind of juggle with them. But also they got to 700 literally some of these plans because so many of the, like Aetna got out of the market. It's a mess. So um, there's a reason why so many Americans only have insurance by name. There's a reason. And I basically write to the point how the health insurance market still, even if it's better than what it used to be, is killing a lot of black people. And to the you know, point, you know, I write about one, losing one uncle to AIDS in my first book and my second, who I reference in the title chapter about Alone Die Poor. He recently died in the fall. Not so much of, I mean, he was in poor health, but his poor health was left untreated because of the cruelty of Texas and under Republican leadership and just general racism, including having no health insurance. The chapter's called It's Cheaper to Die because in many ways, when you look at the numbers, it could be. That's why a lot of people are dying right now because they basically devalue Black life, devalue the life of like basically the poor working poor, which is most people in this country, even if we don't you know, claim that title. Yeah, but a lot of people are done right now, simply for a lot of reasons, but just the fact that our healthcare system is so screwed. Yeah, no, and I think, like you said, that line that you, when you cross it in terms of like your income to not qualify for things, and that's the same thing with housing. So I mean, you know, all of it, yeah, it's, all of it's, it. It's, it's that weird gray area where it's like, and then on paper, like it doesn't count for the fact that, like, if you're black, you might be help. When you're starting from behind, you're starting from behind. And if you're black, you're starting from behind no matter what. But some of us starting more behind than others. But these all these things are all designed to kind of like further trip you up. And which is why, like on paper, sure, you and some white person are, um, might make the same amount of money, but is your money is probably going so many different other places than this person because they're born into generational wealth. It's just it's one domino after another, and it continues to be unaddressed. Which is why I think it's important for more of us to. Talk about it, even if we happen to like President Obama personally. Yeah, no, no. And and again, just like that fine line, like sometimes it's just like that you cross over to where you don't get assistance. Like, like I remember um, my friend, like she was trying to um, look for somewhere for her sister who has a couple kids to live. And like the amount that you had to make to get a subsidy to live in this place, like if she was making that, like she wouldn't be able to like live now. Like she would be practically homeless. Exactly. So I'm like, who is this actually helping? Because she actually really needs the help. But because she makes a decent amount, so therefore, God, thank God, she's able to, like, take care of her children. She can't afford 
or she's not going to be um, approved for like this housing when she's the one that really needs it. And, you know, I think it's interesting. Yeah. And right now uh, we're having this mass, like the, a lot of these eviction pauses, like a lot of people are prone to like homelessness unless people ain't, like act in the, those subsidies as help unemployment insurance runs out in July. Like we're kind of looking at a really dire situation, kind of like immediate in August when it already is. And it's again, like it's those things, like there's this wide middle between everyone thinks they're middle class, but it really kind of is like this. And it's and again, by design. And I think more of us have to, again, talk about this because a lot of us are being left out and just having to figure it out on our own. And that can eat a lot of us up. Again, like I again, it's, it, I write about it from perspective from like student loan debt, but like a lot of people are carrying debt in this country, and it does eat away at you. Yeah, and what I find is like you know at the different levels, especially like for Black people, like that you're earning income. So you know if you are low earner or even mid, right, it's still hard to kind of get ahead. But even as a high uh, income earner, right, sometimes maybe you're the first one in your family to do that. Like that doesn't equate to wealth. Like that's income. Mm-hmm. But not wealth, not net worth. <laughs> exactly what I mean. When you put them on the same paper, like this white person, probably her money is just, just keeps seeping more of it because she's born more, more likely than to generational wealth than you are. And even if she isn't, like she still just has so many more advantages in terms of like even where she gets to live and where you do it. It's hard. <laughs> it is hard. But, you know, I also I also come like many. Right. Come from the perspective what to do about it. Right. I think you writing from your perspective and your experience and is great. Right. Like it. It helps bring out people from the shadows who are feeling this way to feel like this is like this is normal. I'm not alone. The anxiety, the, all the things that come up with dealing with money. And then like I know my platform is helping like with the education of finances and bringing more people into the fold, making it accessible. But for you, like what do you think are the things that we can do personally to help this? But then also knowing that it's a systemic thing too. what needs to be done, like from the outside, like from the top down. Honestly, right now, uh I'm being thrown for a loop because white people suddenly acknowledge racism that, you know, the police kill us and, you know, they don't let us vote all the time. So I might've been a little bit more cynical a few months ago. Actually, no, I write about student loan debt cancellation and I don't want to die poor because a number of Congress people brought it up, but, you know, it really got into the national conversation because of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, And actually since the time of publication before the pandemic, I will say, Joe Biden, not my favorite person. However, definitely voting for him because that's who the aunties picked. And I'm not done with that man no more. So we take the Saddam got to go. Um, please vote. But no, um, he was very, he was a staunch anti-debt cancellation person. He's actually included it now. It's only to 10,000, which is not a lot, particularly for like just the average American. However, there is um, a stipulation. I'm poorly prepared for right now, but there is more money allotted to forgiveness specifically for black college graduates who, again, are disproportionately impacted by the type of debt that I'm talking about. So that legislation proposal, like actually called, like legislative proposal actually addresses that. And I think now more than ever, because for, unfortunately that man has made this economic situation so much more dire for everyone that I think it's going to create, it's going to take a lot of stimulus and climate, like all this legislation to kind of reboot the economy anyway. So I think we really have an opportunity to, push for even more because I think debt cancellation has already proved, like studies have already shown when you cancel, if you cancel all of our debt, particularly our generation is like, we would buy homes, we would have more money to spend. It would literally create jobs. It would boost the economy. Like our our collective generational debt is dragging down the entire country. And it was going to be like this great mortgage crisis for us anyway. So why not use this opportunity to do something? And what people can do individually, 
look, again, I commend everybody that's been out on the streets just to kind of get them laws off our backs. I was in the country again, but like, no, fight about racial injustice. I just think just the same as we continue to have to basically fight for our survival. Once we can pass meaningful legislation in that regard, I think there's still opportunity. I mean, we can multitask, but you know what I'm saying? Like there's opportunity, I think now more than ever to really push people to like consider debt cancellation because it really will benefit us because right now, the way things go, yes, we can have a different president, but like we're still kind of sitting in ruin because the damage continues to be done. So I think there is opportunity there, but we do, we all do need to be more vocal about it and hound these people because they're at home, they ain't got nothing to do. They weren't doing much anyway. Um, right. Well, and two, like, you know, you talk about some of your highest career moments at the same time happening at your lowest or just parts where financially we're just not on. Can you share a little bit about that? Because it reminds me of your whole, in, like the Instagram I hate thing, like this reel that a lot of us put out, like, yeah, I, I may look successful. You know, my house looks nice and like my Instagram pictures look good, but you don't have a clue what's going on financially in my life. Yeah. Well, also wanted me to kind of like append the idea of a lot of narratives is also like, what does success look like in America right now for a lot of people? Being financially challenged and actually being hugely successful depending on what you do, depending on who you are, depending on how you start, is probably more of a reality for a lot of people than, you know, they like to think. Again, there are a lot of people who are high earners who are now in bread lines by virtue of missing a few checks. But I do say, you know, because of the low advance, because of the reality, because of fundamentally, like, again, another thing that I can't control, no matter how much personal responsibility I take, is that I can't control the fact that people are always going to devalue me as a Black gay person, both you know, in terms of criminal justice, racism, but also the casual racism of lower expectations. So me being perceived to have less commercial viability by virtue I'm black and gay and assuming people don't care means that people are less likely to pay me for certain things and I have to prove myself even more, which means I started at even more greater financial disadvantage. So that's how you can end up making the list and losing your health insurance around by basically the same, the, the, the same week. It's because your accolades can mean something, but if they don't come with the money that you deserve, it doesn't necessarily mean nothing, but it does put into perspective that like fundamentally the the bottom line does matter as designed in this country. And until that changes, like that's something we all have to kind of like face directly. So I wanted to also, you know, people think of Carrie Bradshaw and all these people, they glamorize certain things, but I also, yeah, thank you. I wanted to paint a realistic picture of like, and it's not just me, there are people like Samantha Irby that do it, but I really wanted to make also just an indictment of like the system because I don't want people to say, oh, being a New York Times bestselling author is truly great, but that doesn't necessarily pay the bills, at least not immediately. And people need to know that. Yeah. So the New York Times bestseller, getting to the New York Times bestseller list. We're very grateful. Very <laughs> grateful. But then also you said that's when you, you couldn't pay your health insurance that same week. Yeah, because I mean, I got paid like $15,000 for that book when other people probably get at least 50 or maybe 100 or some people even more. So it's it's that. It's like, yeah, I mean, and, and, here, and the caveat is I, I'll earn. So now I actually get royalties. Most authors do not. But if not for the generosity and I don't ask for things, if literally not for help, if not getting over my own ego and pride, that could have been a disastrous summer for many reasons, accolades and all. And it was already like a struggle. Right, right. And one of the things that I thought about asking you was about this idea that, you know, when it comes to money, some people will feel it's not taking care of. It's out of control. There's issues going on. And then like there's other areas of their life that are not so great either, whether that's health, relationships with other people, right? Romantic or just platonic, whatever. 
And sometimes you just think, well, that's my money issues are totally separate. And oftentimes they're all interconnected and you don't really realize that like, cause you're not thinking about it in that way. You're just like, well, yeah, I have money problems, but how is that affecting all these other things? Exactly. Um, one thing about the book is that I even learned while writing it cause it turned out to be a much more difficult 2019 than I imagined kind of for some of the reasons why I thought about it. I literally thought I was over much of that, but, um, is that, you know, it impacted every facet of my life in more ways than I thought. And when I really sat down to kind of like write everything out, it became even clearer to me. So it actually even kind of influenced the writing, like the change of certain things. I'm like, oh, wow, this. Yeah. So it was cathartic in that regard. But also I really, you know, if people can afford it, because I'm also, again, aware of how difficult times are right now. If you are struggling with debt and the again, like the emotional debt as much as the f- financial I do write and I don't know poor. Like I try to lend voice to people who I know it's hard to communicate those feelings. And I know because it's been so hard for me because, you know, a lot of I Can't Date Jesus is about basically intimacy and finding pleasure as a way of forging my own identity, independent of like religion and like an upbringing. But I, what I came to like know is, I mean, see is that writing about money is far more intrusive and, and personal. It's actually scarier to write about because you're admitting like, oh, you're successful, but you felt broke. And even your broke is technically more than most people. You know, it's just all these different things. But like, again, that that debt that I carry is just, you know, I actually just started paying off some of the private loans this week. And I literally teared up, well, no, a week ago, because I could literally start to feel the weight off. Yeah. Yeah. And that's powerful. Like you just said, like writing this book was more emotional than the other book. And that's the thing, like money, like intertwines. It's such an important part of all our lives. It's like it dictates everything we do and what we can afford to walk away from jobs, situations that are not healthy, spending time right with people that you love, family like they're, like it seeps into every area of our, our life. And I think it would be like the number one thing we learn about in school and that the number one thing like we talk about with our friends, but it's not. And I, you know, so I hope that your book and platforms like mine, my podcast, just like the fact that we talk about money, like will help normalize conversations between people. I agree. Um, I very usually am comfortable talking about money. It was good. It's, it's for the greater good. So I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Michael, tell everyone where they can find more about you and get your book. Uh, well, I am available wherever books are sold. Um, and I did do the audio book, if you don't mind the slight twang. So I don't want to die poor. Michael Arsenault. Uh, on social, I am Young, spelled the regular way, S-I-N-I-C-K. That's Young Cynic. It was a joke from a blog post. Remember those. But it's too late to change it because it's not worth coming up with another name. I really appreciate you making um, time and space for me. It's been really great to talk to you. Thank you, Michael. Okay, journeyers, I really hope you enjoyed that conversation With Michael, as I said before, go pick the book up. I don't want to die poor. I think that it's something that so many people, you listening, can probably relate to if you have student loan debt or any other debt. And he writes it in such a witty, relatable way. Again, if you wanted to watch the interview, so maybe you listened and you're like, oh, that was great. I want to watch the interview now. Check it out on the Journey to Launch YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash journey to launch and make sure you're also subscribed there. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. If you want to support me and the podcast and love the free content and information that you get here, 
Here are four ways that you can support me and the show. One, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, that purple app on your phone, your Android device, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to listen, just subscribe so you are not missing an episode. And if you're happening to listen to this in Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe there. I appreciate and read every single review. Number two, follow me on my social media accounts. I'm at Journey to Launch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I love, love, love interacting with journeyers there. Three, support and check out the sponsors of this show if you hear something that interests you. Sponsors are the main ways we keep the podcast lights on here. So show them some love for supporting your girl. Four, and last but not least, share this episode, this podcast with a friend or family member or coworker so that we can spread the message of Journey to Launch. All right, that's it. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.